Welcome to this week's very special edition of the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host, and our guest today, I'm so excited about this, is Frances Mays. She is one of the best travel work writers and memoirists working today. She is the author of the iconic book, Under the Tuscan Sun. She has a new book out called Always Italy. Francis, so nice to speak with you again. You too. It's been a while. We've had a yeah. nice conversation before a couple of times. Yeah, we did. Absolutely. You're one of my favorite guests. And it's so nice to be talking about something other than coronavirus. Although <laughs> I, I will want to get to what you think coronavirus's impact on Italy has been. Uh, but let's let's talk first about the book. It's gorgeous. It's done by it's done by National Geographic, so it's filled with gorgeous photos. What was your what was your inspiration for this one? I had just written See You in the Piazza. It was a guide to little known places in Italy. And I think it just whetted my appetite to see all of Italy. I, you know, I've lived there for years, so I travel quite a bit, but Italy's so vast uh, in certain ways that it was, um, it was just easy to start loving other areas and wanting to see absolutely everything. So I decided to do Always Italy, which covers all 20 regions of Italy. I was yeah. excited about that because even a lot of Italians haven't been to all 20 regions. Yeah. So it, that was, um, it was just that the other book whetted my appetite. The National Geographic actually contacted me and asked me perchance if I would like to do a book like that. And I jumped on it. It was just an amazing opportunity. How long did it take you to get to all 20 regions? Two years. Of course, I wow. can't travel all the time, but... For this book, I also have a co-author, Ondine Cohane. She lives in Pienza, and uh, we were both traveling constantly. We didn't really travel together but because um, mm -hmm. it was so much to cover. But I really needed a co-author because there are just so many details with a book like this. So how did you divide it up? Who did what? It was quite spontaneous. Um, it was like, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? <laughs> I actually went to all 20 regions myself, and she went to most of them. I think she went to all 20 as well, but just different places. Uh, she is in, she, we have different strengths, I guess. She has a child, so she's very interested in, in a certain kind of travel that's family-friendly. And she's a marathon runner, so she's very geared toward outdoor activities. She's very interested in design. And my interests are more art, architecture, you know, food and wine and the writers of the area, archaeology. But our interests seem to kind of uh, magically meld. And we were able to bring much more to each region, I think, than either one of us would have been able to on our own. And I have to ask you about the photographs, which are beautiful. Did you travel with a photographer or did they simply go? I mean, it's National Geographic. They have the greatest photos in the world. Did they simply go to their usual photographers and say, what do you have for this region? How, do, how was it done? It was quite a mix. I expected to be traveling with a photographer because that's the way I've done photo text in the past. But they have such a vast archive that they wanted to draw on that. And then they got selected photographs from various photographers. And 
we went to Washington to work with the, um, the people designing the book. So we had a lot of interaction about, you know, putting the right photograph with the text. And I think it's worked out really well. Oh, it definitely has. It's a beautiful book. And, you know, with all of us stuck home with COVID right now, I think it's a beautiful book to dream on. It really just brought Italy to life for me, both with the photographs and the text. Oh, you, you start the book with a very bold statement. You say... Italy is the most diverse country in the world. Why do you say that? <laughs> Traveling to all those regions just reinforced that to me. I was aware of that, of course, anyway, but just going from top to toe and realizing how each region is almost like its own country was just startling in the long run. It, it's... Um, Historically based, I guess, because mm-hmm. as I'm sure you know, until about 100 years ago, Italy was hundreds of little fiefdoms and papal states and bits and pieces that belonged to various kings and dukes, and they kept pretty separate from each other. If you lived in a papal state, for instance, you couldn't leave town without a passport. Wow. And that's a passport, you know, over to the next valley. Huh. So, I mean, that it does explain how these places had the chance to develop unique, their unique art, their unique pasta, their style of building. Everything remained um, intact in these places. And it's pretty, people are so proud of their traditions that it's pretty much still intact. So yeah, tra- for the traveler, what a joy. You go 50 miles, you're in a whole different world. You brought that to life. I mean, I hadn't realized that Italy had what you call a kind of sharecropping system that tied people so closely to the land. As you said, they could not get off their little plot of land. So they create. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds awful. It served its purpose at the time, I guess, but it was basically serfdom. Yeah, But, uh, you know, we cherish all the contadina traditions and a lot of the cuisine all over Italy comes straight out of that close to the heartland uh, cooking, particularly in some place like Puglia, where the bread is so good. And I finally wondered why this bread was so good and found out that the landowners would let the serfs pick over the grains that after the fields had been burned after harvest. And so they got this um, burn uh, wheat. And now everybody so appreciates this toasty flavor of that kind of flour. There's so many little things in the cuisine like that, that, um, you know, it was just something out of necessity, which in the end became something very creative and, and noteworthy. Isn't that fascinating? You know, I've, I've, edited a bunch of guidebooks to Italy, and I've traveled to Italy for many times over the years. But you have in the book an entire section that no travel writer has ever pitched to me and that I've never edited anything about. In fact, I didn't remember ever hearing about this place, Molise. Am I saying that right? Yes, yes. Uh, The whole South has been kind of undiscovered territory, I think. But down in um, Molise, Abruzzo, Basilicata, what tourists go there and what are they missing? It's just 
exciting to travel there. Of course, some there's some coastline. There are these wonderful little fishing piers that stick out into the water. And those rickety piers have become fabulous, fresh seafood restaurants. Mm. In Molise, I love this little town called Termoli. It's right on the Adriatic. It's got an old quarter of town near a castle and it's just perched there. We were the only tourists there, I think. And this wow. was when people were really traveling. Yeah, yeah. So what you get in Molise and I think Abruzzo, Basilicata, also Calabria, which was new to me, you get this return to a sense of discovery and travel. Like, I'm here finding this for myself. Nobody told me to see this particular church. I came across this village and here it is. Here's an old bell factory. They've been making bells for centuries. You know, here's a a cake tradition. Just all all the sense of discovery that you get back into is just, you know, it's why you travel, I think. Absolutely. Is it a place where a non-Italian speaker would be able to travel easily or would they have to have a phrase book with them? I would assume because it really isn't a place many outsiders go to, right? So uh, as you said, it's it's unexplored. It is. You can find English in a lot of Italy now, which was not the case uh, until until the EU opened things up. So when people started studying abroad and you know, going on Erasmus program. And a lot of Italians, uh, kids have taken advantage of that. So almost anywhere you are in Italy, there's someone around who speaks English, but I would say less so in uh, someplace like uh, Termoli and in Molise and also in a lot of Basilicata, um, not right. Matera, you can find English in that larger town. But it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Italians, as you know, are so gracious and welcoming and friendly. And particularly in those areas, they're delighted to see you. Mm-hmm. So um, that it's, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, you have a whole section on the generosity of the Italians. And I, I don't think I'd ever heard anybody put it the way you did, but it's right. You, you're you right. You know, you go to a restaurant and they, they want to give you that, that extra after dinner drink with your meal or they're generous in just so many ways. It seems like it's a, a, a trait that's interwoven in the Italian culture. It really is. In my two years of travel, This just speaks so loudly to me of Italy. I met only one unpleasant person in hundreds of people. Yeah. Every taxi driver, every every bus driver, every boat captain, every restaurant person. It was amazing. I just had such a good time. And this one rude person I met wasn't that bad. It was just like, she couldn't be bothered, but hmm. my goodness, traveling that many miles and just finding such warmth everywhere. Yeah. I think when we can all start traveling again, they'll be even happier to see us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting you're talking about rudeness because there recently was a study done by this massive site for expats. Uh, they have millions of members, apparently, and they they polled them and they asked them, what are the best and worst places to move to? 
And uh, the, in the top five, or maybe it was the top 10, five of the top 10 were all on the Iberian Peninsula. Everybody was saying that Valencia and Lisbon and other Spanish cities were, were the top places to move to. The second worst place in the world they said to move to, the, this study of expats, and this shocked me, was Rome. They said that Rome was very difficult to live in. And as a visitor, I've I've always been enchanted by Rome. Do you know anything why this would be? I would kill to live in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> so would I. But I think it has pretty heavy bureaucracy. Uh, other than that, I can't imagine why. I think it's just ideal. I was able to stop there for two days on my way home in December and I was able to see Rome uh, in a way, of course, I never had before and never will again. I saw it returned, you know, to this clean, fresh, I could even smell the sea. This wow. amazing place where without the hordes of tourists, every building, every obelisk, every fountain, everything was just shining and stood out. I was able to be in all those places without anyone. So I think I saw it at its most idyllic ever. But yeah. it's so magical, that town. And there's hardly a street you don't want to turn down. And it's one of the safest cities. You, as a female, you can walk around at night and not feel alarmed right. at all. Of course, yeah. it's pretty true all over Italy. It's something we're not used to in the United States, that's for sure. But there, it's pretty safe. Yeah, no, no, and uh, what I liked about the book is you not only cover really surprising destinations like Molise, but you take us to some of the less expected parts of the better known destinations, like the state of Lazio, where Rome is. Uh, tell us a little bit about side trips you can take from Rome, because I think most people, they go to Rome and then they travel an hour away at least, uh, or two hours on the train for their next stop. Very few go to the rest of Lazio, which is a shame. Yes, it is. And that was one of our projects with the book was to kind of tell you what you don't know about what you know, like you know what you're supposed to do in Rome and you see those things. But then what else is there to do? We did that, of course, with Venice. There's Venice, of course, but exploring the rest of the Veneto, exploring the Venetian Lagoon extensively, those kinds of things were very important to us. And just out from Rome, you can visit that amazing Garden of Nympha. You can go to this little village that looks like it just transported from Greece, this white sugar cube village, Sperlonga. A little farther away, there's Sabaudia, which almost no one ever goes to. And it's so interesting because it was built, in, the whole town was built in less than a year by Mussolini. It was an huh. um, outpost that they just created this town out of the swamps after they had finally drained the Pontine marshes, they built this town. So here's this amazing piece of architecture from that period, which is historical enough now that it's becoming really interesting. Plus, mm. around Sabaudia, there's some of the most golden, longest beaches in all of Italy with the towering dunes and little lakes behind the beaches. So it's it's a dreamy place to go 
after seeing Rome to go there for two or three days and just enjoy that whole area. Lazio is beautiful. It's practically an ideal climate. I love Mm -hmm. Gaeta. It's just a stunning seaside town, ancient town. I think Cicero was hauled out of there when they wanted to behead him. And it's been a thriving place. Cy Twombly, the artist, of course, lived there. Um, And who goes to Gaeta? It's, it's, It's great. Well, speaking of Cy Twombly, you also highlight in the book how to see contemporary art in Italy, which I'm embarrassed to say that's something I've never done. You know, I always go and I see things from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Uh, but Rome has become a thriving center for co- co- contemporary art. Yes. And in general, that was a big part of our project because both of us, Ondine and I, living there, you know, we we experience the day-to-day contemporary life, not just what you usually go to Italy for, which, as you say, is the great cultural repository. But we were interested in contemporary architecture and design and uh, wonderful buildings that are coming up for various kinds of um, art exhibits and Right. All the uh, exhibitions that are uh, very popular now, the changes like the new museum in Florence, the new museum in Milano, we wanted to reflect what Italy is really like today. It's not a slow, time-warped place. It's a very contemporary country where they just have kind of the sense enough to bring the past along with them into the future, but they're not backward-looking people at all. They're they're travelers, and um, there's just an acute sense of development in cuisine. The wine is exploding and has been for quite a few years now, but one of my uh, special tasks for the book was to write in your glass for each of the regions. Mm. So that was overwhelming. I never knew there were thousands of varieties of grapes wow. I had some knowledge, of course, but just like going into Molise, going into Calabria, you see how the, the wine is rising and what excitement there is around developing wine. Um, Puglia, the Marche, those are really up-and-coming wine areas. Well, so Puglia, wasn't, it, wasn't that. it the case? Sorry? I was just really glad you picked up on the contemporary part because that was very important to us good book together. Yeah, it definitely comes through. And with Puglia, tell me if I'm wrong. I thought until recently, Puglia exported most of its grapes to be made into wine elsewhere. And then maybe in the last two decades, it became known for its own wine. Is that simplifying it or is that correct? That's true. And I mean, they they are the big exporters of uh, vegetables. It's, It's like the vegetable basket of Italy. And yes, they did. They still export a lot of grapes, but there is really just beautiful, beautiful wine being made in Puglia. In fact, the year I was down there for the book, which was now two years ago, um, one of the local vineyards won the Best Wine of the Year Award by the Gambaro Rosso. So we went to that vineyard and was we were able to meet the owners, the way it happens, as you know, in Italy, you you don't go to a vineyard and, and just um, 
go in a tasting room and buy a mug and a t-shirt and have a taste. <laughs> right. You, it's more that you meet the winemaker, you meet the owner of the place. And um, that was, I went there with a group of friends and we bought a few cases of wine. It was such a great experience. And it was one of the weirder days of my research because I went off to the bathroom and I got locked in the bathroom. I couldn't oh. get out. <laughs> For how long? Well, my friends were just for hours, it seemed, tasting the other room. <laughs> they didn't know where I was. <laughs> That's very funny. Do you have to get advanced reservations for most places to taste? I, it's a good idea to call because they don't have a tasting room usually right. set up. In Tuscany, that's changed quite a bit because there have been so many buildings now for vineyards built by star architects. And mm. so they've gotten in more, into more, um, some of them, you can have lunch there if you make a reservation or um, you can just drop into some places. But in general, still in Italy, you go, you meet the winemaker. I'd say that's especially true in one of my favorite wine regions, which is Friuli. It's, oh. it's the area of white wine and if you're traveling in Venice, Friuli is just a stone's throw away. It's such a great add-on to a trip to Venice. It's I learned there that the white wine can be just as complicated as the red. And the food in Friuli is the best. It's Well, maybe Sicily is the best. I've never decided. It's okay. hard to say the best. What about Bologna? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that too, but... <laughs> Friuli, it's right next to Slovenia and, of course, right under Austria. It, it, the capital of it is Trieste, so that's the easternmost part of Italy. So the influences on the cuisine are various, plus it's a really foraging, hunting tradition and has its own indigenous cuisine. But eating and drinking there, it's worth the trip just for that. But in addition, Friuli is fascinating, it's charming, the tiny villages and it's just a great place to hop on a yellow Vespa and explore. Do you drive around on a Vespa? My husband has a Vespa, so we're used to running into town for bread. I don't drive it myself because it's so heavy. I, I mm. can't quite manage it, but I ride on the back. I have a big helmet. Oh, how great. How great. So... I think, and this is just my guess, coming out of this pandemic, a lot of people will probably be drawn to nature destinations. I think that there's this, uh, it's not going to be normal for a while and, and you can more easily socially distance in nature destinations. And people forget that Italy has wonderful, you know, outdoor spaces like the Dolomites. My husband went there. He's a cyclist. And that's one of the greatest challenges in the world is to cycle in the Dolomites because the, the mountains are so tall and the ups and downs are so steep. But he brought back photos. It was a region I haven't been to that I would have thought were, were in Nepal. Uh, it, it, just the mountains were so magnificent. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to go to the Dolomite region? It's astonishing. It's the heart-stoppingly beautiful. The mountains are, are a rock face, different kinds of rock. When the sunset hits, they turn kind of lavender and pearl and pink. You just have to keep pulling over the car and saying, stop, stop, I've got to take a picture. But uh, my son-in-law is a cyclist too, and that is one of his dreams to go there. 
but we go for the walking and hiking, um, you know, not as strenuous as real mountain climbing, which a lot of people go there for. But I'm just a fool for the lakes up there. All through the Dolomites, there are these green, deep lakes that are so cold. But you just come around a bend, and there in the distance is this vast lake, and they all have paths around them. That's kind of my favorite kind of hiking there, is um, Mm. walking around those lakes. But from so many points in the Dolomites, there are small towns, and they all have all these paths at all levels of um, difficulty. And some of them are just marvelous whole day hikes where you can go up to what's called a refugio, a little stop that um, caters to the hikers. And you can have the grilled sausage there. And sometimes Mm. the owner's playing the accordion and you can have a big jug of wine and then, you know, make your way back down the hill. (laughs) It's, it's so healthy. And even if you're not a big hiker, it's, um, it's a great place to go. I also absolutely fell in love with the whole region of Trento, Alto Adige, the main town of, of which is Trento. I could move there. I, I tell you, I felt unfaithful to my adopted town of Cortona. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout this book, I found several places that I could just call the van and move there. But Trento <laughs> is one of those amazingly civilized cities that you, you could just love living in. And it has one of the most fabulous museums I've ever been in. I didn't really? expect in that area, you know, this mountainous area. Yeah. I didn't expect them to have such. Was it contemporary? Such, was it oh, art? Yes. Was it, it was, this museum is a science museum designed by Renzo Piano. Wow. It's six stories around an atrium. So you climb up like you do in the Guggenheim, you spiral up, and the whole center of the atrium is filled with the taxidermied animals of the region. They're suspended by wires at all different levels, and it's just magical. It's a whole glass building overlooking the mountains in the distance. And then nearby in Rovereto, there's a contemporary art museum designed by Mario Bota. So these towns up there, they've gotten some of the most famous architects in the world to design museums. So that's another aspect of the contemporary that we were thrilled to be able to explore. Yeah, absolutely. So before I let you go, you you were back in Italy this year because I know now we're talking to to you from the United States uh, and you said that Rome was sparkling and and uncrowded. What's life like in in Italy right now? You know, in the United States, we have no idea what lockdown means because they really locked down there and they've still had major problems. But people have been very cooperative. But we, when we got there in October for the olive harvest, um, we had to quarantine for two weeks. And that meant you don't go anywhere. Um, we had to have everything delivered. Fortunately, we have a lot of friends who brought things over. But when we got out of quarantine, um, the virus had really kicked in again. So we went on lockdown very quickly. And that meant 
you don't go anywhere at all. You've got to get your groceries. So you fill out a form online that's registered with the uh, police. And you have to have this form with you in the car in case you get stopped. Where I am now in in, uh, Hillsborough, we have a 10 o'clock curfew that's just not even enforced at all. But the lockdown there was very serious. And there was no nonsense about not wearing a mask, for goodness sake. Right. Yeah. Um, they never got into that. I I think they have a long memory uh, in their genes of the bubonic plague. They they know yeah. how those uh, viruses can devastate a population. So it was serious. It was very serious. And you know, as soon as we get this jab in our arms, we'll go back to living like we want to live. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Or very interestingly, today, I just wrote about this, Iceland uh, put in new regulations that anybody who has the vaccine or who recovered from COVID can come to visit Iceland without quarantining and without having to take a test. Well, let's do Yeah, because I mean, here in the United States, Lord knows so many of us have had it. So it's going to be, it's it's a strange movement going forward. But, you know, I was just saying that I think uh, there's this movement towards nature, but I was here, I heard Fareed Zakaria on NPR talking about cities. And he was saying that at the time of the bubonic plague, Florence was hit worse than any city in the world. Mm. And everybody fled who had money to flee. Uh, And people were saying, Florence is over, it'll never recover. And then a hundred years later, there was the Renaissance, you know, and it was the center of the the thinking world. So uh, we'll get through this. Looking at Italy, when people go there, will there be holes in the tapestry of everyday life? Will there be restaurants that were beloved and now gone and shops that are shuttering? Or do you think uh, that they'll be able to survive better? I'm I'm talking to you from New York City, where we've seen a lot of places close and it's yes. been devastating. Yes. Uh, how, how do you think uh, Italy will come through this? Same there. You know, a lot of people have lost their livelihoods and lots of things are, are closed by a government decree and may not ever open again. You just have to hope. I think in general, Italians are very resilient people as we are, and it will recover eventually. It's not going to be overnight, but I, I, I know they're all looking forward to the time when they can just as we are, um, open up and welcome everybody back. And I would say that the people, when when it all opens up again, when it's truly safe to travel again, Italy's going to be amazing. You're going to want to go there because you're going to be able to have the experience you had in Rome of seeing places that used to be elbow to elbow with tourists, yeah, just with the locals. Yes, it'll be so exciting. I'm going back over in the spring. Um, I think probably by April I'll be back there. So I can't wait. (laughs) How wonderful. Well, reading your book, which once again is Always Italy, uh, will really prepare everyone <laughs> and also give us something nice to think about and look at and dream about. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> well, we can dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Francis. I so appreciate you appearing on the show. Thank you, Pauline. You're the best. And I hope I see you in the piazza sometime. <laughs> I hope so too. Thanks. 
Once again, that was Frances Mays. She has a book out right now called Forever Italy that is as delightful as Under the Tuscan Sun and Meet You in the Piazza and all of her other books because Frances has this ability. Uh, this is going to sound like a not a compliment, but it's meant as a compliment because when we travel writers write, we're often writing about places that we absolutely adore. And so you're going to gush. Uh, but when Frances gushes, she does it in such an erudite, wise, uh, forward-seeing way. She, she, when she writes, she brings so much context to everything and so much heart uh, that you just go along with her when she's gushing and you realize she's right to gush. This is an amazing place. I mean, she is writing about Italy after all. Uh, who can't love Italy? If you don't love Italy, then you are a Scrooge beyond all proportions. But anyway, so it's a delightful book. Uh, in preparing for this article for a couple of hours, I wasn't thinking about coronavirus. I was thinking about Italy and what a lovely mental vacation that was. So go out and get the book. Like like so many things, this is a book that I think would have been on the tip of everybody's tongues if coronavirus hadn't happened. It came out a couple of months ago. I think sales have probably been fine, but they haven't been off the charts and they should have been. It's a really, really delightful book. And I have no affiliation. This is National Geographic. This isn't us. Uh, I just am such a fan. So a company that I do have affiliation with, of course, is the Fromer Guidebooks. We hope you will support us too. And you can do that easily, either by buying a guidebook, and we will be traveling someday, so it'll come in handy eventually, or by coming to fromers.com. Uh, as I've said in the past, Fromers is our website and we cover the world there. We don't just cover travel. We cover history. We cover cuisine. We cover weird trends. I wrote an article this week. It was about a map I found on an investment site. So it's for people who want to invest in big global brands. And it looks at what are the most popular brands in the world and also country by country. No surprise, McDonald's and Nike uh, sweep the rest of the competition away. But there are some really interesting quirks country by country and sometimes continent by continent. Like who even knew there were fast food options on Antarctica, but there are apparently. And bizarrely enough for that chilly, chilly place, they love Baskin Robbins. That kind of blew my mind. <laughs> anyway, um, Visit us at Fromers.com. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's free. Uh, and uh, I should say goodbye for this week. But as always, I am hugely grateful to spend this time with you. And if you are traveling, even if it's just across the street, even if it's the grocery store, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Bye.